Welcome to Glorious Professionals brought to you by GoRuck Media. Our guest today on episode 11 is Coco Tang. By day, Coco is a management consultant. By night, she is a nationally registered paramedic and a DOD trained tactical combat casualty care instructor. Coco was born in Fushun, China, not far from the North Korean border, and moved to the US when she was 12. In 2013, she moved to Jordan as a Fulbright scholar to conduct academic research on ISIS and Syrian refugees. During that time, she began volunteering medically at the refugee camps, and since then has worked all around the world, including community outreach initiatives in Sierra Leone during the height of the Ebola crisis in 2014, the Nepal earthquake response in 2015, Syrian refugee camps in Greece and Iraq. She most recently returned from a medical deployment in Kandahar, Afghanistan. She comes to us today from the epicenter of the COVID-19 outbreak in New York City, where she's working the night shift at a hospital treating high-acuity COVID-19 patients. Coco, thank you so much for joining us on the show 15 minutes after you've woken up. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Let's, uh, let's start with where you are right now. We're in Jacksonville Beach, Florida. It's, it's raining a little bit. You're in the epicenter, you know, everyone is, is focused on New York City right now, and rightfully so. What's it like in, in New York City where you are? So before I get into that, I just want to preface that I'm only at the epicenter geographically. I'm actually not at the epicenter clinically, because that would be ICUs, ERs. I actually work on a surge floor, um, meaning we our job is to decompress the COVID patients away from the ICU and ER. So as soon as they become stable enough to get moved to a floor, that's where we see them. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I mean, how long are they on average spending in the ICU? It depends. So I think because I'm not working in the ICU, I can't attest to them as if they were my patients, but anywhere from a few days to like several weeks. Um, some of the patients on our floors right now, um, some of them have been in the hospital for weeks and months, actually. And so what's it like from your perspective? I mean, just your day-to-day -day life, what are you wearing? What's the fear like? What are supplies like? You know, all these logistics, you talk about war stuff, it's beans and bullets. And yeah. how are we How are we doing? Sure. So I'm in New York with a private, private medical contractor, um, and we're contracted into one of the hospital systems. Um, so we generally operate within sort of like the confines and authority of the hospital system. Um, so the PPE comes from the hospital. We just do sort of like the staffing and the manpower aspect of it. Um, in terms of fear level, I think at this point among most healthcare providers, we have this kind of blase attitude where we're either like, well, we probably already have it already. If not, and we get it, then it is what it is. Um, I think most of us are aware that we have just as much a chance of getting it in the hospital as we do elsewhere. The only difference is in a hospital, we know what we're getting into and we have the PPE to at least shield ourselves a little bit. Whereas in the real world, it's, you know, a crapshoot. So is this sort of, does this remind you of, of other situations? You've been to a lot of dangerous places <laughs> yeah. and, and you've been there in the middle of, of outbreaks and personal safety is something that you, you learn to manage risk in that regard, you learn how to reduce risk. So how does this compare? Well, first of all, the other bad places or war places I've been to weren't in the U.S. So <laughs> the destination country is different, which makes everything feel more different. Like I think when I go to like the DRC or even like the Russian-Ukrainian border, like I have a different expectation. Like I have a lower sort of standard of life, but here it's a little bit, it feels kind of like I'm in this weird twilight zone because I go to work and it's 12 hours of like grinding and working and helping out with patients. And then I come back and I get the luxury of being able to order alcohol delivery to my room. It's just like a very strange contrast because normally when I go to a war zone or something, I'm sleeping on like a tarp on the roof or, you know, I'm in like a tiny little crappy house, but here, like they put us up in a hotel in Times Square. So what's Times Square like right now? Um, deserted. I mean, they're like, have you seen Vanilla Sky? What is that? With, with uh, Tom Cruise? No. He pulls, the, it's, it's this kind of alternate reality type thing, but he basically pulls into Times Square and it's just completely empty. Oh. And it's, it's meant to be this just, oh, this could never happen. It's just insane, you know? 
Yeah, I think what um, people think about sort of like an empty Times Square is like all the lights are down, it's dilapidated and like tumbleweed floating around in the streets. But I mean, it's deserted only in terms of people, like all the businesses still have their lights on, like the neon stuff is still flashing um, and it creates for an interesting experience at night when you're trying to sleep. So is it more or less bizarre? Do you wish there were tumbleweed? I mean, it, just how strange is it? That's kind of what I'm getting at. It is very, very strange. Coco, can I share that you were recently back from Afghanistan and your housing situation in the DC area fell through. Oh, yeah. And yeah, she, so. she, she went on social media and hit up friends and said, does anyone have a couch I can sleep on? Or, yeah. And so I was talking with her, trying to figure out, you know, if we had anything that I could help her with. And then it was a little dicey there. She wasn't sure how it was going to work out. And then yeah. now you don't, your housing situation has been resolved. <laughs> I'm living in better conditions than I would normally be living in. So <laughs> I was back for not even like two weeks, I think, when everyone got put on telework status and I got sent around the country. But I was like couch surfing on an air mattress in someone's sunroom desperately looking for a place, but then this started and yeah. now I'm just living out of these awesome hotels. I, I don't get the sense that I'm as stressed as I would be in a war zone because I understand, you know, like the comforts of home are here. If I do get sick, I have a healthcare system. I have health insurance. I have benefits that I can always rely on. Whereas when I was overseas, you know, I don't know if I could get medevaced in time or I don't even know. I could be two days away from the nearest like decent healthcare clinic. Yeah, I actually can relate to that is I think we prepare ourselves and our minds differently when we go abroad, right? Yeah. You're already out of your comfort zone and you're prepared for things that you you're you wouldn't be if you're just like, hey, I'm just in another state in my own country. Having spent time like you in, in West Africa, I was never like afraid of a terrorism attack or a rebel, you know, kidnapping me. That just was not I mean, obviously that's a threat, but it's in the reality, when you think about it, the thing that was likely, more likely to kill me was getting sick, you know, getting some sort of illness. Or if I were too far away from the nearest hospital and couldn't get back in time sort of thing. So it's that golden hour. Yeah. So, you know, yes, it, here you're like, you know, you're going to be taken care of, but does it change? Like, does the risk just change for you? I wouldn't, honestly, I wouldn't say personally, I've approached the risks of being involved in COVID any differently from how I normally do. I've definitely put myself in situations where I've been kind of cavalier about my personal safety, and but, but I don't feel like this is one of those instances. Like I chose to be here. I understood the risks and I don't feel like any of us who signed up to come to New York City or deployed to like any of the other epicenters are um, kind of blase about that aspect. Talk to us about one of those instances where you you were a little bit more cavalier. And, you know, what I would say to that is it's always building, right? I mean, you're, you're learning, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that. And then that makes you more prepared for the next one. I'll give the, the recent, like, DRC mission as an example. So that's Democratic Republic of Congo, right? Yes. So last summer we went there for, like, a healthcare uh, needs assessment mission and we had to go to this one village in South Kivu that was really only accessible by like chartered flights or MONUSCO helicopters. Um, and MONUSCO is just like the UN peacekeeping force there. So we went by charter flight. Um, and it's like, like this little plateau where missionaries had kind of like set up before, but then left. So their housing infrastructure is still there and the clinic is there. But it's like this plateau surrounded by rebel territory. <laughs> So we were there and then we had a charter flight scheduled, but then it canceled for whatever reason. So we had to beg the next Monusco helicopter to take half of the team um, back to Goma because they had flights back to their like countries that were connecting with them like a day or two. And the rest of the team, including myself, we were essentially um, stranded in this little village, um, which, you know, is not... A really good situation because we were essentially sitting ducks surrounded by armed potentially violent rebels and then on i think like our second or third night being stranded there like some drunk guy with an ak-47 like stumbled be into like our fenced little compound and like knocked on a bunch of doors and like startled a bunch of people but it, i mean it turned out that he was just drunk and didn't know what was going on but it could have been a lot worse so i think just situations like that where no matter kind of like 
what you plan, how you plan. There are always going to be weird things that pop up. Sometimes things just go to shit. Oops. That, no, that's that's okay. Yeah, they do. They they do they, really fast, actually. And that's um, you telling that story. And I just want to let listeners know that that's actually a really big deal because you know you there's no infrastructure. You can't even get out. Your your numbers. I mean, how many were you that were stranded? There were expats it was me and one other person but our local staff there were like three or four so we all we all ended up getting out on the charter flight who came i think like four days later um but it was just like a very dicey situation you you have less than 10 people stranded in in the middle of nowhere that's not accessible the cavalry's not coming for you you know the the u.s embassy (laughs) oh and we didn't have yeah we also didn't have any like cell service Um, so if something happened to us, I don't know how we would have called for help. And someone told me that when I was talking to my friend with like the limited WhatsApp connection that I was getting like one message every few hours, he was like, you're living the plot of this movie called Tears of the Sun, which I've never seen. I've seen it. But he heard me, it was like. Bruce Willis. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. You need to watch it. Navy Seals. But. Oh, great. But what people, if you, if you don't follow this sort of, um, missionary or sort of UN missions and, and people like, like you, Coco, the, the sad truth of it is that in small numbers in some of these places where there's just not a lot of, you know, deterrence for bad behavior, they, they were raping yes. and, and hurting and, yeah. and really in some, in some cases killing yeah. um, people in these situations. This happens in South Sudan. This happens in the DRC a lot. This happens in other, in other, you know, places where, you know, there's just not a lot of governance going on. And so it really is a, is a threat. And I think, unfortunately, I think humanitarian workers are often targeted because they know that you're, you know, they may not be armed because a lot of humanitarian efforts, you're not even allowed to have a weapon unless you have, you know, your, that's your job to to protect. So it really, that is a, that is a dangerous situation, you know, Mm -hmm. that you were in. Glad you made it out. Me too. So what are you seeing in terms of the differences between the, the patients? If, if you sort of take a step back and compare Ebola to COVID-19, just from the front lines, I mean, what's the feeling in the room like? So the immediate thing comes to mind is sort of patient expectation, where as like in other, I guess, developing countries where I've treated people, um, you know, like I wasn't in one of the ETUs. Uh, during the Ebola crisis, I was more working from the public health side. But even then, sort of like the people, what's the word I'm looking for? Like they were more appreciative of the healthcare delivered to them. And I don't, I don't mean that in the sense that like the people here aren't appreciative, but like I think they're more used to a higher level of comfort, being able to have families visit. You know, in in the U.S., like people expect their family to be able to call into their room phones, like they expect to be able to communicate. But here, like we've been soul slammed and it's not just my floor you know like the whole system-wide um issue is that like we're not able to accommodate any visitors like sometimes meals fall behind so like the normal i would say creature comforts that i think patients in america are used to experiencing are absent but when i've been overseas like treating people in some crappy little corner of their village Like they already have zero expectations. So as long as you do anything to make their symptoms a little bit better, like they think you're godsend. It's just like a very different experience. So what's the sort of best case scenario here? I mean, what are the, who are the best kinds of patients in America? And I say that because look, someone listening to this will get COVID-19. Sure. It will happen. Yeah. They, They will end up in a hospital. And, you know, you've got people on the other end of this that are, like you, you're putting yourself at risk to help others. And so how do they do their best to help you help them? I do understand it from the patient's perspective. You know, some of them have been on the floor for a really long time. They haven't been able to communicate with their family. So I understand the frustration, but I, you know, also just, I would like for them to understand this frustration is not unique to them. Everyone is experiencing these things. Um, So I guess I would say to your listeners not on what who become COVID patients is um, bear with us. That's great advice. You know, it's like you said, it's, it's lower the expectations a little bit. It's everybody needs to give, give, a, give everyone a break. 
yeah. you know, and this and but like you said, it, it is a different experience for folks going in. We're hearing it's likely you might not be in touch with your family. Your your family members aren't going to be allowed to come in. Oh, I, yeah. I think most hospitals um, don't allow visitors. Right. It's not safe to mix like COVID positive and like other people coming in from outside. So I don't know of any facility that's allowing visitors. Right. Um, but some places do have the ability where patients can dial directly into like a patient's room phone or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just because like our operation is so new here, like that ability hasn't been set up. And that's one of the things that um, sort of people bring up constantly because they want to talk to their family. Are they not allowed to have their own cell phones? They, they are. But, you know, if you're elderly or if you don't have your own phone, um, mm-hmm. there's no really any way for you to communicate. And I understand their frustration completely. But, you know, the situation is what it is right now. It's sort of a triage, right? I mean, you're 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 focused on the, the basic needs and, and cares. And but the, the gap yeah. is, is one of expectations, as you've brought up. Right. If you expect something all the time. And this is America and not just America where you, this is New York city. Dreams are born of New York city's expectations. That's where dreams become reality, yeah. right? Because you expect so much and those expectations just become the new reality. And now it's, it's all back to sort of baselining. Yeah. I think when you're so deep in it, you don't really see sort of like the bigger picture. And I think that's hard on everyone. The thing that kept coming to mind as you were talking about this was when, when you deploy to war and you link up with a partner force, they were there before you got there and they were fighting the war. And then when you go home six months or 12 months or whatever later, they're still there fighting the war. And you get to sort of, you're there for a period of time and there's sacrifice involved. But to me, the healthcare workers are just permanent fixtures on the front line. So when you're sick and you go into the hospital just realize, you know, your, your day yesterday might've been really bad. And then someone's first day is now the the hundredth day or the 50th day you've been there. And it's just, it's cumulative. So the advice is yeah. really well, it, you're putting it out there really well to say, be, be kind. Yeah. Be kind. Um, be patient. I'm actually quite lucky because I'm not like a mainstay healthcare worker, like my normal day job. I don't work in a hospital. Um, I'm sort of like, surge staffing, if you will. I guess I would be a reservist if this was a actual combat situation. Um, like I came in because there was like such a need that all these extra like ancillary medical contracts are being activated. But like I've worked with some of like the people who normally are in this hospital system and they're just like exhausted, like hundreds of patients coming through like their docket. And it's just, it's unsustainable. So what's the hardest part? for you and your, your colleagues? If you had asked me this yesterday, I would definitely have said sort of like the learning curve. But from the shift that I got off of this morning, it was much better because you put a bunch of strangers who've never met before from all over the country into work, a floor that's slammed with admissions. Like we have to pretty much learn the system as we are doing it. And that was the first day that our floor had opened. Um, so it was a lot of like, trying to figure things out, like sink or swim situation. And that I think was the hardest part. But I think, you know, like today went much smoother. So I think we're like over the hump at the moment, but we have another floor opening soon. So we'll see. Coco, you, you go to a lot of crazy places. Um, I'm sure people sometimes don't know what to make of you sometimes, you know, and you're like, I'm dealing with ISIS, you know, Syrian refugees and in Iraq and and I go deal with Ebola um, and, and the DRC and, and you know, Russian-Ukrainian border and all, all, these, all these places that you've been and that you've worked in, you know, suboptimal conditions. What was it like for this one? Is it sort of the same reaction? Did you get any pushback from anyone? <laughs> so my friends who know me, I don't think any of them are surprised anymore. I think most of my friends would have been more surprised if I didn't pop up in New York. But from my parents, for sure, like there was a lot of pushback. Um, I usually don't tell them anything before I do something because it just makes them worry like pointlessly. So I told them once I already got to New York, you know, that I was in New York, blah, blah, blah. And then they were upset, um, understandably, because they were worried about me. And, you know, I had to be like, well, you and my dad, you know, want me to be a doctor and this is what a doctor would do. So actually, it's your fault for inspiring me to blah, 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 blah. (laughs) 
You're, you're a smart one, Coco, you know? Yeah. I have You've to, always you know, got an argument, don't you? On them because, you know, this whole Asian thing. But I, so, I mean, my dad has now, I think, come around. He's pretty supportive. My mom is still quite concerned because bo- both my parents, I think, had COVID, of course, unproven because they weren't eligible for testing because the U.S. testing system sucks. But yeah, so, I mean, this is very close to home for me. Like, Where are your parents now, Coco? Oh, they're in, they're in Arizona. Wow. And do you think that they already, they were exposed to COVID earlier? Oh yeah, for sure. So they both had symptoms. My dad had symptoms. Um, and then my mom had symptoms shortly after they're doing okay now, but like they couldn't test because their symptoms essentially weren't severe enough. Yeah. So, so Coco, this leads me to another topic and I want to get a little personal here. You're, you're Chinese American Yeah. and you know, your parents are, are both born and raised in China, correct? Yep. So obviously with sort of the, you know, origin of the disease and, and we've seen as times, time has gone by, and unfortunately a lot of news saying that there's been racism and against, you know, Chinese Americans. And I'm wondering what has been your experience? So I would say I've experienced more expressions of this type, type of like little covert racism, if you will, um, on my international legs. So like last month traveling back from Afghanistan, like I passed through some countries in the Caucasus and even Norway, like the racism that I've experienced recently have actually kind of benefited me. It's mostly people who refuse to sit next to me on an airplane. And the result is I get the whole road to myself to lay down. Um, good, good for you, you know, good. Yes. Yeah. There's always a bright side to things. Sometimes racism works in your favor. <laughs> I say that very tongue in cheek. Racism <laughs> is bad. Um, but by and large, like in the US, like I haven't experienced any acts of overt racism against me since coming back to the US. But I have heard from like other friends and colleagues where people have said, you know, like racial slurs to them, particularly in regards to COVID. And I always joke that being an Asian wearing scrubs is a bit of a double whammy because people are targeting scrub wearers as spreaders of the virus and also Asians as spreaders of the virus. So yeah, we'll see. If anything does happen to me, I'll be sure to let you guys know. Well, if you're if you're a little misanthropic, that's this this could work in your favor, like you said, right? And <laughs> <laughs> give you more space. Yeah. yeah, I just hope no one like pours acid on me or yeah. something. The video that I saw online recently. Yeah, was- obviously, yeah, I'm we're 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 making light of this because nothing bad has happened to you, but unfortunately, there have been a lot of bad things happening, and that's why I wanted to bring it up because yeah. you know you're in a you have a unique perspective, and I'm wondering if there's any sort of cultural aspects of you know you you spent the first what twelve years of your life in in China, and and then then you also but has have spent more or less the rest of your time when you're not traveling in the United States. So what, what is your culturally, like what's, what are your, what's your take on this is. So, I mean, from my vantage point, the responses between the difference in response between China and the U S have been vastly different. Um, and China, I think, you know, I have no delusions about my home country, um, but China being kind of like a one party, almost police state, like people have the expectation that, if the government needs to, they can clamp down very easily. But um, that is in such stark contrast to this kind of like states do what they want, governors do what they want, um, like this kind of inconsistent, almost chaotic response in the US where some places won't even shut down just because their governor doesn't know what's going on. But it's so different in China because like people expect the state to be able to clamp down. Like that's just like a fact of life that they accept. So if you're told to wear a mask, that's what you're going to do. You're going to wear a mask. If there are travel restrictions, I mean, the most you can do is complain about it, but what's going to happen is going to happen. But here, like people have so much, the government give people such like a wide berth to do what they want. Um, and I mean, you know, it's a freedom thing, which is good, but also like in a pandemic, maybe you could think about sacrificing a little bit of that freedom for the sake of like the herd. So that's like one sort of major difference that I noticed. I'm not saying, you know, like the Chinese response was like perfect and a beacon shining example or whatever. Certainly we'll never know like the extent of how the virus actually affected China. But I do appreciate that it's easier to get things done in that type of government, if that makes sense. 
just a little local flair is they just reopened the beaches in Jacksonville Beach, right? Yes, I heard. And That's so crazy to me. Yeah. So this is one of those things where if you live here, if they actually enforced social distancing, then it's the right answer. And it's the right answer because it's just more real estate. I mean, people getting socially isolated and living by themselves and never seeing anybody and not going outside and never exercising and never getting sort of vitamin sunshine, that's not good long-term either. Or, or being too crowded on the streets where you're allowed to be on. Exactly. You know, when the sidewalks, I mean, sidewalks aren't six foot wide. So, you know, how do you, yeah. how do, you do that perfectly to a T? It's really hard. And I know it doesn't play well at all. When, when you're in New York City and you're on the front lines and there's a picture from a blimp of a beach that looks like it's just, you know, Memorial Day 2019. Yeah. And it, it's not a good look. Yeah. And it, it, it's kind of, New York City though is a completely different vibe, right? I mean, Central Park is open, by the way. Sheep's Meadow is open. But from what I've seen, I mean, it's kind of on lockdown, right? Yeah. And, and in the bottoms up, like people have taken it upon themselves to say, hey, I'm going to wear a mask. I'm going to socially distance. And that's what the, that's what the disconnect is with us down here is people don't take it as seri seriously because they're not as personally impacted. Yeah. And you bring up a good, you bring up a good point about, you know, so China, it's, it's simple because the expectation is that you, you have less freedom, right? You do as you're told because the government, you know, that's just the norm here. We enjoy a lot of freedom. And like you said, in, in on a good day, that's a good thing. But in a pandemic, we're hoping that people choose to sacrifice or to do the right thing and not just be more of a part of the problem. And, and part of the problem can be just taxing resources in the hospital and elsewhere, right? Yeah. Or, you know, and so it's a, it's a good point to say, it's like, do use your freedom wisely, you know, not just sure. because you have it, right? Well, so one thing that I've been blown away kind of, and there's like an online meme that's like people thought during an apocalypse, everyone, it would be like everyone, man for themselves. But actually I think COVID in a lot of ways has turned people into good neighbors. And I've just been blown away by sort of like the ingenuity of like organizations, like establishments in trying to maintain operations, but still like mitigating risk factors. And it's just people like stepping up to kind of meet the needs of the situation. But I thought that was like a major positive. Like what's impressed you that you've seen? Like how like certain hotels and, you know, food delivery services or whatnot have just like figured out what works. So like signs that are like, you know, one person in the elevator at a time, like tiny little stuff that you normally wouldn't even think about, but like people just stepped up and came up with these measures without like any kind of government telling them to do so specifically. And, and to me, New York City is kind of setting the standard, right? I mean, not just from a governmental position, but bottoms up. I mean, I've, in addition to you, we have a lot of friends that are, that are in the city and people just seem to get it. Yeah. And I think part of that, um, you know, not being a New York native, this is sort of like my outsider perspective. I think New York is different because it is so like densely populated. It's in the news all the time. Like the messaging from Cuomo is very like streamlined and it's very clear. And I think the fear level here is just higher because this is all you ever hear about. Like you, you can hardly walk several blocks without seeing someone in a mask. And also just, you can't walk two blocks without having to interact with someone in general because the city is so, just so dense. Whereas I think in other parts, maybe even Florida, like people live further away, like you have to drive instead of walk or take public transportation. And you could go quite a distance without having to be in close contact with another person. Um, but here, that's not really an option. So how would you describe morale there, you know, literally on the street? I would say people acknowledge that they have to do what they have to do. Like we have dedicated drivers um, who come pick us up and they show up to work and they just do what they got to do. And people in the hospital, you know, like we're all tired, we're all overworked, but we just, we accept that this is what needs to happen. Getting to your, your routine, which I'm sure you've to some degree perfected over the years in these kinds of, I mean, you don't always have a hotel overlooking Times Square. But, you know, the human body still needs sleep. You still need food and, and the occasional glass of whiskey or whatever it is that, that you, you had delivered, right? <laughs> yeah. So I am notorious for not 
being very good about taking care of myself. So um, if you are hoping for me to give advice to your listeners, I might disappoint. Um, right now, I'm kind of burning the candle at both ends because I work a day job remotely. And then at night, I do my medic stuff. So I get maybe like a few hours in between. Um, and then I get two nights off a week, which helps me like recharge a little bit. So how long can you sustain that? I guess we'll find out. <laughs> like when I was in Afghanistan, my day started at 6 a.m. and ended at like 8 p.m. at work. And then I would do like an hour of CrossFit or yoga or what have you. And I would be in bed by like 11 midnight and then start over. So, and I did that for many, many months. And I felt always like I was at 65%. Like I could never really fully charge to even above 80, which was really hard. So we'll see how long I can keep going like this. I, I want to add that I would, was communicating with Coco a lot when she was in Afghanistan and she would be sending proposals and writing blog ideas. And I mean, she's just, and she's an artist. She's a classically trained artist. And she's also plays the violin and a Chinese zither. Is that what it is? Zither? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Some yeah. Chinese instrument as well. I mean, you are just actually, you have a lot of energy and you can go, you, 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 you put yourself out there a lot. True. I'm pretty sure I have like undiagnosed ADHD because I don't idle well. So in a way, like I have to keep myself so like exhaustingly busy. Otherwise, like I almost get anxious when I have nothing to do. So I try to fill my schedule as much as possible. And this particular deployment has been really good for that because I hardly ever have any downtime and any downtime that I do have, I have to sleep. Yeah. I mean, you're a different breed. You're, you're what we would call like affectionately a weirdo. You go to these hot spots because you are qualified and you you're dedicated to serve. And but you're also, you know, an adventurous soul. You know, you want to, to move around. Not everybody is built like that. And and I met Coco at a GORUCK event a couple years ago. It was one of our um, actually survival ones where, you know, it was like a 24 hour sort of thing. And I immediately gravitated towards her because I could tell just by her demeanor, she was she was someone that I would like to hang around and know more about. And so that's kind of how our friendship developed. And Aww. it's true. <laughs> Don't cry. <laughs> but but it's true because um, I'm, you know, I'm actually really glad people like you exist in this world because I was like that for a while. And then, you know, we have family and then it's just, it's hard to keep that up. I think you can't do it all. So you have to kind of step back, but I look forward to a time when I can get back out there again and serve in a, in the way that you do. And, and, you know, some people might think you're crazy for doing the types of things, but really the world needs people like that. You know, we need, we need all types and, and you're just like the special sort of person that will, is willing to go to these, you know, hot spots and, and dangerous places all over you. You're putting yourself at risk. You know, you're dealing with your family, being uncomfortable with it, but you you do it because you're, you're, I think, you know, you're called to a higher service and, and there's, you know, the benefits obviously of, you know, sometimes the thrill and, and not, you know, staying busy enough that you keep your anxieties low, anxiety levels low. Sure. Um, and to sort of offset the idea that this is all just me being very altruistic and heroic, like some of that is self-serving. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like I use my medical stuff as a vehicle for travel. And if that travel just happens to be in a bad place, then so be it. But like, I really need that kind of movement and momentum and adventure in my life. Like, I can't really stand the idea of sitting still, um, in one place for too long. Stress is your de-stressor. I, I get it. Yeah. Yeah, actually it's true. You know, and, and so, but for, for those out there, they're listening. I mean, you're, you're in your late twenties, right? Yes. You know, when, when we were in our late twenties, you know, she was in the agency and I was in SF and we were going off into hot zones and war zones and we were serving other people. We we're serving something bigger than ourselves. And, you know, I'd win a lot of nights not sleeping very well because I didn't sleep at all. Or, you know, you burn it at both ends and get out there and do it. I mean, you're, you're squeezing a lot of life into life and your twenties to me, especially looking back, I mean, that's 15 years ago, 13 years ago, whatever. And yeah. you don't regret burning it at both ends while you still can, because snap your fingers, you know, and all of a sudden something changes and, and it, it just, life does evolve and you get these, this wealth of experience that you have. And so, I mean, you've been in North Korea too, right? <laughs> yes, that was for 
uh, spring break of my senior year. Yeah. So uh, anybody out there, think about where your spring break was, your senior year, and, and Cocos was in North Korea. And the point is not to compare to her. The, the point is to say, everyone has their path, but it's, it's great when you hear that call to service and you answer it and, and using the skills that you have to travel and to directly run toward the sound of gunfire in, in service to others. And if, if you enjoy that lifestyle, then do more of it. I, I think it's, it's great and it's inspiring and it's really cool to see what you're up to in New York City. You make me sound way cooler than I think I actually am. I think I'm pretty underwhelming in person. And now your listeners are going to have this inflated opinion of me. And then they're going to meet me and they're going to be like, that's it. That was you. <laughs> LOL. <laughs> we also have these fairly beautiful photos of you, you know, and all these cool places you've been. So I think people are going to think you're pretty awesome. Regardless. But so here's the thing. I've traveled a lot of places and some of the trips that I don't, find that memorable was when I was sort of trying to find myself or look for, look for an adventure for its own sake. I think the way that you've wrapped it in service as a way to travel, I think that's highly aspirational. And I think that people should look to do more of that instead of, you know, going backpacking in Europe and, you know, hostel to hostel and investigate churches and, and, drink beers all night and then, you know, pass out and wake up under some bridge somewhere or whatever. Not that that ever happened, right? No, never. Definitely not. That, instead of that, find something somewhere that you can do to help other people and anchor your trip off of that and, and keep going as, as long as the ride continues. Yeah. I have a lot of friends that just jump from like project to project and they float around the world and that's all they do. Like they volunteer here and then they, you know, go somewhere else for volunteering. Like six more months and like that's their life and then somehow they make money i'm not sure like if they write blogs or if they work in a hostel or something but those people are out there and they're full of stories so there's lots of stories i'm sure there's there's the adrenaline rush of sorts it's not a pure adrenaline junkie but it's just you know keep going keep doing interesting things what do you do when things are hard how do you kind of mitigate that sometimes i drink like a lot but you can edit that part out Hey, this is all about real talk, Coco. It just depends on like what kind of hard it is. Like usually for if I'm having like personal issues, then, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll drink. Um, but more than anything, like if I'm having problems, I, I just try to keep moving. Like the thing that I'm scared of most is not having the energy to like keep my momentum up. Um, and I think when I was in my darkest, the worst point of my life, and there were a lot of <laughs> things going on, but like, like I turned to travel, like travel kept me sane. Like the fact that I knew that I had an itinerary, I had flights to catch. I had like places on the checklist that I needed to visit. And I told myself I needed to visit these places, but like no, having that like sort of discipline to get to those places, do those things. I think it kept me sane. I think if I just sat in one place and like wallowed in my misery, um, I probably would have killed myself. Gosh, yeah. So like for me, the most important thing is being able to keep moving. Like it's just sometimes it's just one step at a time. Like I'm going to get up and I'm going to like do the dishes today or I'm going to get up and I'm going to show up at work and I'm going to sit at my desk for eight hours, even if all I do is attend these two calls. But I did it. And so, yeah, I think that would be my best advice for me. It's just like I have to tell myself to keep moving, like no matter what, like just bulldoze forward until either you can't anymore or like things get a little easier. Do you find it rewarding help, helping others? Yes. I think the only correct answer is yes. But like, I think, but for me, like I said before, like it's also sometimes self-serving, like it, it feels good for me. And I can't say that all of my intentions are always altruistic. Like I took the mission in DRC because that was a country that I've always wanted to go and that was a part of the world that I wanted to see. And our mission, you know, like geographically, we were close to Virunga Park and I got to see that. But like, I feel the impacts of my help overseas more than I do in the U.S. So I used to work EMS in the U.S. too. Like I rode on well, 911 ambulances, like I ran private transports. Like if I didn't show up to work in one of those positions, they'll replace me like that. But overseas, like I've been the first healthcare provider that someone in like a Nepalese village have ever seen in their lives. So like I feel that impact more. And I think that part feels really good to me. You, you've also 
grappled with some difficult situations. Like, you know, we could we could do a whole another podcast on your time working with, you know, Syrian refugees in, in Iraq and yeah. you know, the politics involved with that and sort of the layers. There's a lot to unpack in those sort of situations. And, you know, in some ways people think being in healthcare makes it more black and white than say being in diplomacy or in some other areas, but you know, everything has a lot of gray area if you look for it. And I would love to to talk to you more about that at some at some point. But yeah, so I think you're talking about when I was working um in Rajava in Nahul, mm-hmm. where there were a bunch of like um like ISIS or family members of killed or like ISIS like fighters. Right. Yeah, I wrote, actually I wrote a piece for you guys about that. And like I didn't ever have any doubt about what I had to do there. Like they were my patients, whether or not they were ISIS members. So that was never a question for me, but like morally, like internally, like, and privately, I kind of had to wrestle with the idea, you know, that some of these people were people that try to kill me and my friends, like way back when. And, but like you, you know, they're, they're people when they come to me, like, and I have to treat them like patients. Um, and they're not any different than any other patients that I have to see. Right. So we're going to have to have you back on when the travel world gets back into business and flights are flying again. But Coco's got a lot of great stories to share about traveling and, and as a female and, and, and just as a person traveling on their own and what, what she's learned in sometimes the hard way through all those sort of adventures. But I really think this has been really enlightening to hear about your time in, in New York. And I think, you know, we wanted to talk about the sort of other places that you've been to to provide a backdrop of what what kind of person you are. You you have a unique perspective being who you are and what you've done. So I just want to put a disclaimer out there that I'm by no means like an expert on this. Like this is just my view. And I have like, you know, kind of a very limited view of what's going on. So don't definitely don't take my word um without like looking into other stuff and just, you know, I am not the authority on these things. (laughs) We have had a lot of different people come on and they have different perspectives. And I think you offer a very unique one because like I said, you've, how many people have said that they can, they've been in the Sierra Leone and DRC dealing with sort of the Ebola break outbreak, you know, and now dealing with COVID. I mean, those are, there's a, there's a very few group of people that, that can, can talk about that. So you know, I, I watched the sort of Ebola outbreak very closely, having just left that area of the world and yeah. and was very happy to hear that the country that I had worked in for three years, Cote d'Ivoire, did a really nice job of cordoning things off and limiting yeah. their infections compared to their neighbors. Yeah. That being said, you know, COVID is a whole different thing and they're struggling and they're having a lot of um, problems in in their country right now in, in Cote d'Ivoire and in Abidjan, where and uh, one area where I used to go work in an orphanage is a marginalized area of Abidjan. The Ivorians were burning sort of the makeshift tents for testing on COVID because they were worried about the infection spreading. Yeah. Everything's a little bit different, you know, how they it's handled. Yeah. So that's actually something interesting that I think is consistent through any kind of not not just pandemic, but epidemics, like any kind of like healthcare related thing, like people have these skepticism of science and they have all these conspiracy theories. Like even when I was in Sierra Leone working on these like public outreach initiatives, like people didn't believe Ebola was a thing. Like they thought it was because people ate bushmeat or it was like God's punishment for being gay, or it was like a political weapon that the opposition party was using to like sort of like change the political dynamic. And, you know, you see that in the U.S. too, like people don't believe COVID's real, like people think it's just the flu or like people think there's all these like hoax and whatnot going on. And that's just such an interesting testament to sort of how the human brain works. Like, what are you thinking? (laughs) Tell tell us what you really think, huh? (laughs) Um, I was I was almost kidding. But if you if you got some ground truth, let's hear it. Just like listen to the science. How hard is that? I just. (laughs) You're right. I mean, it's unfortunate that there's so much superstition wrapped up in this or, you know, and I mean, listen, people sometimes in power take advantage of these situations and, you know, propagate 
information, you know, to keep people from um, going to the polls in Africa, you know, to, to let... Well, not just Africa, but like here too, like... Yeah, everywhere. I mean, crazy. to stoke flames, you know, and across the world, why there's this. So I think what you're saying is like, you know, look at the science. So on that note, what sort of resources do you go to, to cut through the crap and actually get the information you need? I really strongly advocate people not go to one single source. So if I find information, I will usually like source from multiple sources. I will get information from multiple sources. Like I'll, I'll, I'll read like Al Jazeera, BBC, CNN, MSNBC, but not Fox News. Sorry, you might have to edit that one. Out too. <laughs> you know, like NIH is usually pretty reliable. I kind of take a lot of these like government, I don't want to say propaganda, but they're kind of propaganda, like propaganda sites. And I mean, even now, like the news is a grain of sand, right? Like we know testing is so inaccurate and so behind in the US. Like the numbers, at least for testing, don't really mean anything. So I don't know what is a good, perfectly reliable source nowadays, but I would say for a complete picture, you really have to have more than one thing that you go to for information. I think that's, I think that's fair. I mean, any one source, I mean, everyone's got bias, you know, you gotta, you gotta sort of shop it around. So just to wrap it up, how much longer do you have in New York? It's funny because my contract says indefinite. So I guess until they pick an end date for this contract or the need dies down or I get COVID or I've had enough. I don't know. Well, keep us posted. And we're really grateful for your time this afternoon and, and really give, give all of the folks that you're working with our, our absolute very best and don't give them a hug maybe, but give them like an air fist bump or something. And yeah. say, we say thank you because, you know, our perspective is we're thousands of miles away and you, I think Florida is on the precipice. It hasn't quite hit you guys yet, but your time is coming. Well, I hope not. But yeah, I, I think it's, it's definitely a possibility. Real talk. Like Florida needs to get a shit together. Well, yeah. Okay. It's been all over the place. We, we yeah. agree. Yeah. It, it could be better. I mean, the, the spring break look was not a good one. Twice. No. Yeah. I mean, oh my there God. is the. So I mean, there, there are tests though. I mean, heat and humidity is really bad for this virus. I'm, I'm not an apologist and, and I'm not making excuses. I mean, we have some macro forces that are working in our favor, despite some of the, the errors. So yeah. th that's kind of why my, my fingers are crossed and, and we shall see. But, yeah. but knowing that we are, we, you know, we're taking this seriously and uh, most of the people we know are, you know, in the sense that we're social distancing, we're limiting sort of, you know, exposure out in public and yeah. You know. But I mean, while that's good, it's not enough that some people take I know. It Unfortunately, you're right. Even if a quarter of people don't take it serious, because at the end it falls back to the hospitals and like the healthcare workers. Right. Like people like what's the point of clapping for nurses and doctors if all you're doing is sending them more patients. True. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, it, it is kind of all eyes on healthcare workers. And there is that silver lining of just being grateful for the people who are serving others in, in the healthcare world and in essential businesses. But you guys are really putting yourself out there and, and we're grateful to you. One, one good thing for me that's come out of this is I've gotten so much like free and discounted swag from like companies who are like appeasing to healthcare workers. Like Things that are normally completely unaffordable to me, suddenly I can afford to buy them. <laughs> Silver linings. Yes. What, what's your What's your drink of choice that you ordered? Is it? Oh, I ordered a monkey shoulder. <laughs> monkey shoulder. <laughs> well, Coco, we're grateful for your time. I know you got to get going and, and sort of do your stuff. And thank you so much for coming on. And look forward to, to seeing you in person when this passes and having you back on to talk about some of the, the travel stuff. Yes, I will be happy to do that. Awesome, Coco. Thanks. Bye. And Coco has left our garage digital version. It is refreshing when you talk to somebody who just, there's, there's not a lot of filter and not a lot of BS and hey, this is how it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I appreciate is her perspective. You know, she's lived in a lot of different places around and in, in circumstances, you know, and she's obviously a really hard worker. She has pretty, a very impressive resume. You know, she's constantly creating and doing things. And, and I meant it when I said that I'm glad people like her are out there. She puts her 
politics, she checks them at the door every time she goes on these sort of missions. You know, she she's helping patients no matter where they're from, if they're an ISIS member, <laughs> if they're racist towards Chinese or Chinese Americans, or, you know, if they're a, a rebel that might not treat someone like her nicely while she's, you know, doing a humanitarian work in, in the Congo. I mean, she's still out there taking those risks. And I think that what we're seeing today, if I just take that a, a step farther, is that there's just a lot of eye-opening on jobs that people might not usually appreciate. And, you know, when you think about the grocery store workers, you know, I've had people tell me like, gosh, I've worked in a grocery store my whole life and I've never felt like I was essential. And yet now, if I, I know if I don't go to work, that it's a very big deal. And I've got to keep myself healthy so we can keep these, you know, this grocery store stocked. So, you know, it's, it's actually really great, you know, truck drivers, mail deliverer, you know, people delivering mail, cocoa, paramedics, nurses, doctors, you know, other people working in the hospitals, people delivering food, making sure it's safe. I think this is going to be, it just makes you think twice about what is worth doing in this world and, and why you should do it. And I think having this attitude that there is no really nothing beneath you in terms of a job, as long as you show up and you do it to the best of your ability. I'm, I'm in for that. Yeah. Coco, like you said, she's the type of person that says, sign me up. And she's, and she looks at as, as, it, as this is what she does. You yeah. Know? So the other thing you can take from her is she's, she's working two jobs, right? One pays the bills, probably a little bit less passionate about that one. And one is her passion, her life. You know, there's some straddling that goes along with that. And that's a lesson for all of us, really. I mean, you, sometimes you you need a job because you need to provide for your family. And, and then you have other time that you can do other things with your life. You can figure out a way to serve others. You can serve your kids, right? You can serve your neighborhood, serve your community. It comes in all shapes and sizes. And what's expanding in our thinking about this is right now we're seeing the, the breadth and the depth of the kind of service that holds our country together. And that to me is the fight club class, the people who are, who are doing the, the most basic tasks out there to, to keep the economy going, to keep the hospitals running. Can you imagine how much chaos and stress there would be if, if that just evaporated? It would just be pandemonium right now. And, and so there's an extra sense of appreciation for folks like that. And, and as you said, which I completely agree with, it's great that people like Coco are out there. And we wanted to chat with Coco because we want you to get some inspiration to go do something just a little bit more. It doesn't have to be get on a plane and, and go fly to New York City to the global center of the pandemic and, and volunteer your, your, your time or your medical expertise, especially if you don't have any, right? I mean, do what you can do with what you have where you are. That's the, that's the point. And, and so for me, when I, I listen to, to Coco, what else can we do to help others with, with the time that we have while we're still, while we're still taking care of, of our own family, our own basic needs? And, and beyond that, what do you really need? You need to focus on other people. And, and so it's, it's refreshing and it's, it's fun to, to chat with her. Yeah. Coco's the kind of person she, she doesn't sugarcoat it. She's like, listen, I do these things cause I enjoy them. And sometimes I like attack on a trip, you know, when I do this travel and, you know, I, I do it cause I'm passionate about this and it, it, it fills me up. And, and sometimes doing things for others, you can feel that it's selfish cause it actually is filling you up, but it's a different type of selfishness. Yeah. I, I think that's okay. I think we're, we're comfortable with that. If you want to go be a doctor or a nurse or anyone on the front lines helping others. If, if that's selfish for you, then, then good. Inspire more people to be like that. Absolutely. All right. So thanks so much for your time and, and for listening today. We'll, we'll catch you next time.